Have you ever seen a brain outside of a body? I'm not talking about that animal brain you dissected in biology class. I'm talking about a real-life human brain. Inside the body has a lot of blood around. It has the membranes that cover the brain, which are called the meninges. And then the tissue itself has two colors that are appropriately termed gray matter and white matter. So when you look at the brain from the outside, what you're going to see is mostly a gray organ. To the naked eye, a brain doesn't look particularly complicated. The real magic happens when we use scanners, like MRI, to get cozy with our thinking cells. But sometimes that's not good enough. Sometimes we really want to take it apart and sink our fingers into the cells that control our bodies and minds for science. But we can't just saw open the skull of a living person, take their brain out, play around with it, and stick it back in when we're done, not without upsetting them. So, if we want to discover more about the organ that makes us who we are, we have to figure out a way to see it, feed it, and keep it outside its natural cranial habitat. We've got to get that skull out of the way. So, let's go find some brains in the wild. We've got a list of places we can see a brain outside of the skull, and we're going to check them out with the help of a few of our favorite researchers. Running a lab that keeps thousands of frozen brains in Tupperware containers? Check. Feeding drugs to little brains that were grown by scientists in Petri dishes? Check. Taking microscopic pictures of a brain with what might be the world's thinnest deli slicer? Check. I'm Katie Jensen. This is Playing With Marbles. Let's take a walk together to one of Canada's largest mental health research facilities, the Douglas Mental Health University Institute of Montreal. If you make your way down the main boulevard, sitting amongst the acres of lush green space is a smattering of brick buildings. Some of them have been there since the late 1800s. Back then, this institute was known as the Protestant Hospital for the Insane. Despite the spooky name, it was intended to be the most progressive mental health institute in Quebec. This was the first place that antipsychotic meds were used in North America. If we open the door to the Perry Building, our surroundings shift from Victorian Hospital to Modern Research Institute. Dr. Gustavo Turecki is the scientific director of the Douglas Research Center. He's the best tour guide we could ask for. Dr. Turecki can lead us through the pavilion to a heavy door. Beside it, a plaque that reads Douglas, Bell Canada, Brain Bank. The Brain Bank, it's a place where you get in and then basically you have a corridor with a lot of doors. And what you hear when you get in, it's noise from the freezers that uh, make a lot of noise because we have like dozens of freezers. It's a very noisy place because of that. As Dr. Turecki walks down the corridor, researchers in white lab coats bustle past, disappearing through doors. Some carry plastic containers. But back to Dr. Turecki's tour. And then each room on your left, you know, would have all these freezers. They're one besides the other one. That's where all the frozen tissue is stored. The tissue Dr. Turecki is talking about here is, of course, brains. Real brains. That were in real people. 
And this lab is one of the few brain banks in North America that specializes in housing not just healthy brains, or at least healthy apart from being dead, but brains afflicted with mental health disorders like depression and schizophrenia. There are over 3,000 different specimens inside these walls. Some neurodivergent, some not. On your right, you would have the room where we do dissection. So when the brain comes in, um, needs to be processed right away, labeled and stored. So that's in the dissection room. And then we will have some parts of the brain that are taken out so that can easily be uh, used later on for study. You know, some areas that are very small, when they freeze, it's very difficult to identify. Researchers at the Institute have access to tissue from a mountain of specimens, all carefully labeled and stored at non-perishable temperatures. You can imagine it would be a great resource for looking at obvious physical problems, like the blood clots we see in stroke. But Dr. Tarecki's research focuses on suicide and abnormal mental health, things you can't see by simply pulling out a piece and looking for blockages. So let's say I am a psychiatrist and I treat patients with depression. And I'm interested in trying to better understand what causes depression. So you come to my office because you are depressed. I cannot ask you, can I get a piece of your brain to study? It's not an organ that we can sample differently from instance, from sampling blood. If you came, you know, with diabetes, I will get a sample from your blood and then measure sugar levels in your blood, you know, but I cannot do that with the brain. So the only way for us to study the brain is for us to have access to it after the person died. So a brain bank, it's basically a repository of brain tissue from individuals who donated the brain, and then we can have easy access to brain tissue to study many different things. The composition of the brain will study functional changes at the cellular level, at the connectivity level, and in many other ways to study. So this is really essential to advance neuroscience. And until researchers can figure out how to cut little chunks out of your brain without hurting you, we'll have to rely on brain banks to better understand mental health and living people. Personally, I'm in favor of keeping my marble intact. And in the spirit of open science, the brain bank shares their samples. We process about a thousand requests per year of scientists around the world who want to have access to the tissue. So as you can imagine, that's a lot of work. So we need to store the brain in a way that it's easy to identify, that we have access to the information easily about the brains, and we can dissect the tissue easily. All right, so let's pretend we're one of these researchers, and we've just been given a new specimen to work with. The file says this person suffered from generalized anxiety disorder and had a history of depression. We want to know what causes symptoms on a structural level inside the brain. Now we are able, for instance, to take individual cells and interrogate each individual cell for what was going on in that particular cell at the functional level, yes? So we can see, for instance, what genes were turned on and what genes were turned off, and then look at that and compare with a brain from an individual who was not ill. So that would tell us quite a lot 
because it would give us some insight into what was different between someone who was ill and someone who wasn't ill. But this type of diagnosis fishing isn't perfect. The challenges are, of course, is that the brain as a whole is a big organ, and we don't know exactly where in the brain the problems are. So we have to go step by step, region by region of the brain, you know, and then try to better understand. And that it's really a tremendous amount of work. The Brain Bank is helping researchers piece together the puzzle of why certain brains develop mental illness and why others don't. But mental health disorders don't exist within the vacuum of research labs. They're part of people. The goal of this research is not just to understand how brain cells work, but to improve and possibly even save lives. Dr. Tarecki has been figuring this out through trial and error. He does spend a lot of time conducting research with the Brain Bank. He also takes on living clients in his psychiatry practice. And it gives him a more holistic understanding of the brain sickles he has to work with. Working with patients is essential because it gives you insight into possible hypotheses that then you're going to explore later on with the brain tissue. You know, if you have a, an idea that you want to explore later, you're going to look at the brain tissue, you're going to test that idea, and then uh, let's say maybe you were correct. And so you had this idea from actually observing and working with patients who are affected with an illness, and then you test it. And then maybe, you know, you were correct. And then that observation may lead to treatments, may help you better treat that particular condition. So it would circle back, have an impact in the clinic. So maybe we've convinced you to donate your own brain. Lucky for you, they're currently accepting donations. But there are a few things to consider first. We don't take donations from people who are alive. That should be a no-brainer. So there are two ways, basically, that we recruit brains. Either when people consented before they died, or we work through a collaboration with the coroner's office where families, postmortem immediately after death, consent for a donation. So for instance, let's say people who want to give their organs to science and then we approach the families, families give the consent and then we get the brain. So once the brain arrives in the brain bank, they are dissected yet so that they can be properly stored and then the tissue can be retrieved later on. So the tissue is processed in a way that facilitates that. So half of the brain, it's fixed in formal. It's a way to process the tissue for some types of experiments. And then the other half of the brain is frozen and it's kept in freezers, it's minus 80 freezers, where the tissue is preserved in a way that can be used for other types of studies. When scientists contact us, they want, let's say, to study certain molecules. So they would need frozen tissue. When they need to study something else, they would need fixed tissue. So your donated brain will be used for all sorts of research, possibly around the world, for years to come. Who knows? Maybe your noodle will be a brain sample that helps cure depression. But if you're not ready for that sort of commitment, and you still want to help Dr. Tarecki's research, you can always donate to the Brain Canada Foundation. Tell them I sent you. Brain banks are great. We love brain banks in this house. But there are some limitations to doing research on brains in jars. 
The big one is that they're dead. So if a researcher wants to test out a new drug to see if it can help with depression, for example, dead brains don't get better. There wouldn't be blood or electrical activity to move the drug around the tissue. So we have to take a different tack. Up until now, we've mostly studied neurons using animal models because that's all we had accessible. And it just became increasingly clear that a human brain or even neuron is not the same as a mouse brain or neuron. That's Dr. Liliana Adesano. She and her team of scientists in Toronto were looking to improve the ways we can experiment on live brains without using animal models or potentially hurting humans. And so we decided to apply sort of this new technology where we can make human-based brain neurons that we can study in the lab. Pause. They make brains? Like mini-brains? Mini-brain conjures up this uh, image of something that looks exactly like our brain growing in a dish that maybe can uh, think and respond. And it's not really a tiny version of our brain. What we're recreating in three dimensions is different parts of the brain. They would never function together to, <laughs> to develop thought. So we just try and avoid that perception <laughs> that there's cognition in what we're growing in a dish because that doesn't exist. So they aren't achieving sentience. No tiny brain uprising coming out of Dr. Adesano's lab anytime soon. Instead of calling them mini-brains because that's not entirely accurate, Dr. Adesano's team has landed on the term brain organoid. An organoid is defined as a mimetic of the tissue that displays different cell types that are organized in some manner that reflects what a true tissue would look like. So you could have a liver organoid or a kidney organoid, but they're making brain organoids, growing a bunch of neurons and sticking them together with glial cells, aka nerve glue. It's kind of like a deconstructed hamburger at a fancy restaurant. It tastes the same, but it looks different. Let's learn about how to make brain organoids. First off, you need multiple years of experience researching stem cells. Everybody got that, yes? Okay, great. Let's move on to step two. We need to grow some brain cells. How do we do that? We start with a pluripotent stem cell, same as you would start with the first step of a, an embryo. Quick biology refresher. Pluripotent stem cells are a building block cell that can morph into any type of cell. A blood cell, a bone cell, in our case, a brain cell. Dr. Adesano's team gets a hold of these stem cells by converting them from skin cell samples. Next up, we need to feed these stem cells the right type of nutrition to make sure they take on the characteristics of brain cells. Finding this concoction took a really long time to figure out. We've only known how to feed stem cells in this way since 2013. As the stem cells get fed their favorite brand of NutriJuice, they start to grow and form into different layers, like the layers in the cortex of a real brain. To the naked eye, they look like little white blobs, kind of like a marble, actually. But the really interesting stuff happens under the microscope. I guess it's sort of like a teeny tiny round ball or oblong shaped tissue sitting in a dish. So it's not like in vivo because there's no blood, there's no immune system, at least not yet. After that, according to Dr. Adesano, they just kind of do their own thing. 
Well, we basically just let the cells figure it out themselves. So, and then just nudge them along the way. I'm quite serious. So, we just uh, provide it the right environment and it will just execute the normal program. First step of embryogenesis is formation of what are called the three germ layers. And then you put them in an incubator and you just let them shake and you can. Uh, start analyzing them after a month or six months or nine months. They, they just keep growing and maturing. But even if you're a stem cell master chef, it'll still take six months to a year to learn how to make the special sauce. It's a little bit like an art. So you might read the protocol and, you know, count 2,000 cells and place them in this dish. But even how you transfer them is something that you can't put down on paper. So it's a little bit of technical knowledge that you have to develop over time. Now we can give these organoids new drugs and experimental treatments to see how the neurons might react. But a brain organoid is not a human being. It's like saying a few skin cells are the same as your face. It's still something, though. And researchers can also create organoids that have diseases like Alzheimer's. I think one of the challenges for many neurodevelopmental disorders and psychiatric disorders is we really have no way to explore them the way we would other diseases or cell types. And so what we can do is, for example, we could take skin cells from patients with particular disorders. So, for example, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, we can take their cells and convert them into brain organoids and then study how they differ compared to um, those generated from a normal patient that doesn't display the disease. And then we can, you know, manipulate it at the molecular level, add things, stimulate them in different ways that we can't, I mean, obviously we can't experiment on a, a human the way we would like to, <laughs> to answer these kind of questions. So it's extremely powerful. Dr. Adesano is also looking into how to make these brain organoids more like a brain, not just in cellular form, but in structural form as well. I mean, in terms of the organoids, what's really needed is getting one step closer to the in vivo situation. So, for example, I'm working with a team that is trying to introduce blood vessels into the brain so that we can study the blood-brain barrier and increase nutrient flow so that we get closer to what it really looks like in the brain. Next step is adding in some kind of immune system. So in other words, getting a more advanced model that comes closer to in vivo so that we can really do reliable drug testing. So wouldn't it be great if rather than testing any new compounds in animals, which is what we have to do now, could be done in a dish in a highly reliable manner? I think it would be a huge advantage. I mean, right now, you have to test a new drug before you give it to a human. You test it in animals. Problem is, humans are not animals, and there's no model that's similar enough that we can trust results from one species to another. And so having a human-specific context would be, I think it would be a huge advantage for drug development. Brain organoids are still experimental, and at this early stage, they're really far removed from the realities of what a real brain is like, how it looks, and how it functions. But there's a project that's tackling one whole brain in incredible, delicate, minute detail. 
In our last episode, we met Dr. Alan Evans. He helped develop a type of scanner to check patients for Alzheimer's disease. When I came to Canada, I uh, started to work on positron tomography as an imaging physicist. But I was always at least as interested in the biological uses of these technologies as in the technologies themselves. That's not all. Dr. Evans has projects on the go, and he expects they'll provide more accurate results when using brain scanners to look for abnormalities in the brain. One in particular is near to his heart. One of the projects that we've been engaged in now for about 20 years, which has become, uh, it started out as a labor of love, and it's now become a much bigger enterprise, I guess, is the the so-called big brain. It started life as a project to deal with the problem of brain mapping. That problem Dr. Evans mentions, it has to do with what scientists use as their litmus test. Brain mapping rests on a standard brain that everybody in the world uses. Then you study, they collect the data, and they map the new data onto that brain, into that space, into that three-dimensional space. It's kind of like the brains from the brain bank. There, if you have a patient who might be suffering with a mental illness, you can take a sample of a brain with that disorder, then look for similarities. But in this instance, researchers use this standard brain to look for abnormalities. In the past, that standard brain was based on MRI. An MRI has a a spatial resolution of about a millimeter in each direction. A millimeter is a thousand microns. Or almost the width of a grain of sand. That's a very thin slice of noodle. However, that's still too thick to get into the finer details of brain cells. And so, in a joint effort with researchers in Germany, Dr. Evans's team got to know the brain on a microscopic level. Uh, our German colleagues did the wet work. They took a single brain and they used a gigantic deli slicer to slice that brain into 7,000 individual sections, each 20 microns thick. Now we're getting somewhere. 20 microns is about a fifth of the width of a strand of human hair. So that's 50 times smaller in each direction compared to an MRI volume. Do the math, 50 times 50 times 50 is 125,000. So the big brain is the equivalent of 125,000 MRI volumes. It's a huge amount of data with near cellular resolution over the whole brain. Researchers then took a picture of each of the 125,000 slices and compiled them into a data set. It's easy to say that what it actually involved was years of processing to take these 7,000 20 micron thick slices, which each covered the whole brain, but they're ripped and they're torn and they're distorted and they're optically imbalanced and there's all kinds of problems with them. So we spent years beating that data to death to restore it to three-dimensional coherence to build the the three-dimensional big brain data set. And after years of slicing and taking pictures and restoring the data, the big brain project finally made its grand public debut in 2013. So now researchers have a perfect diagram of a normal brain that they can use for comparisons. Last time we checked, it had been downloaded by 25,000 groups around the world. 
So it became an international standard. Seriously, even you can download the Big Brain data if you want to at bigbrainproject.org. Yay for open science! Just make sure you've got a lot of space on your computer. It is 7,000 separate two-dimensional images. So a student usually or a trainee will go to that website and uh, essentially press the button and download all of this information. It takes a long time to download all this information. But before you go out and buy an external hard drive, Dr. Evans already has a fix. A portal where you can browse the brain without downloading it. So it's been set up as one of the data sets that we make available to the world through the Canadian Open Neuroscience Platform that's funded by Brain Canada. With that CONP platform, we've built a portal which allows people from around the world to come and download not just the big brain, but many other kinds of open neuroscience data that we've been given by our colleagues to make available to the world. And of course, this has allowed people around the world to extract all kinds of interesting information about the brain using the big brain itself to analyze uh, the, the layers in the cortex. We map all of that into a in silico computer simulation of the human brain. And of course, this allows us to explore all kinds of aspects of brain development and brain disorder. So thanks to Dr. Alan Evans's team and their colleagues in Germany, the general population has access to this very detailed map of a standard brain. And with so many people using this map to research the brain, there's a lot of people reviewing the data. Luckily, Dr. Evans welcomes the open dialogue. Do you ever hear feedback from any of those 25,000 people about what they want you to do next or how they want you to do your work differently? Yeah. They say, yes, but it's only one brain. Can you collect a thousand of these to cover age, gender, brain disorder? And of course, it took years to build one of these big brains. And it took 10 years to do it once. Maybe to do it a, a second time would take only two years. But there's still each time is a massive amount of work to develop something like this. So we are working on uh, Big Brain 2 and Big Brain 3. This is the final step in the positive feedback loop we call open science. Once you break down the barriers to accessing this sort of data, more people can experiment with it. And then there's more possibilities for success in finding cures for illnesses. Science used to be the the province of uh, one researcher, two students, and half a secretary working together in a cottage industry. Well, that's changed completely with the information revolution. And now science in general, and certainly neuroscience, has become industrial scale. Large amounts of data being collected, imaging, behavior, genetics, all kinds of information. And it has to be assembled and analyzed. It's become more and more apparent that the the way that you really have to do this to make progress is to share the data so that more scientists around the world can get at it. So you don't have a single investigator sitting on a precious data set and publishing one paper a year for the next five years. You let hundreds of scientists get at it and lots of work comes out of this and you science advances much more quickly if you do that. And in the end, that's really what all this research is for, right? It's to better the lives of those suffering with brain disorders or mental illness because we all have a marble to take care of. With open science, you can make that data available to a lot of people, and therefore, 
get to the cure, whatever the cure might be, faster because there's more people looking at the data. This is all the good reasons to share data. It's not enough just to describe the clinical outcomes. Of course, it's the clinical outcome you want to fix, but you're not going to do it by just looking at the end stage outcomes. You need to get in and understand the, the brain anatomy and physiology. listening to this season of Playing With Marbles. The show isn't over, though. We'll have new episodes to explore more about how brains work and the research around them. So if you haven't yet, follow our show on your favorite listening app. And don't forget to tell a friend. What do you want to hear next season? Leave a comment on our socials, at Brain Canada, or in a review on your podcast app. We'll use our frontal lobes to comprehend all of your feedback. Playing with Marbles is a Vocal Fry Studios production in partnership with Brain Canada. The executive producer is Jay Coburn. Our associate producer is Max Collins. I'm Katie Jensen. Thanks for playing. <laughs>